0: Uh, pretty thought-provoking. I'm actually going to do a starting a series today on what it means to be a follower of Jesus and not just his fan. Um, Through the Gospels, we see Jesus invite people to be his followers. They're called his disciples, which uh, if if you literally translate that, disciplined ones, followers of Christ. This is his invitation, not only to them, but to us, to follow him. To, to, as he leads his people, that we come after him. Um, I, I shared this um, probably about a year and a half ago, but there's an interesting saying that would be among the teachers of the uh, or the people, the followers of the, of the teachers of the first century, the first century rabbis would call people to follow them. They would say the words, come follow me, because they looked for these people that were the cream of the crop, top of the class, and they would invite them to follow them, to mentor them. And they would say, come follow me. And so it was known to be said among them that the, the, that the people that would follow the rabbi, they would say this as a blessing over each other. They said, may the dust of your rabbi cover you. In other words, that you would walk so closely to your teacher and mentor that the sand that kicks up from his sandals would get on you. And they were known to do this. They were known to follow their, their, their teacher, their mentor, their rabbi, wherever he would go. If, if he was teaching, they would all be there with probably scrolls and, and whatever they wrote with, not chisels or anything like that, but you know, it would be our day where we take a notebook and you would follow, and in those teachable moments is what is he saying? What are we gleaning from him? And he would teach by word as we see Jesus in the gospel. He would teach, but also he would demonstrate and he would show them how to do certain things, and, and, uh, and, and not just by word only, but by, by, by example of his life, how to be more like him. And that was the point of being a follower of a rabbi, is to learn from him, glean from him. Everything that he says, I listen for those teachable moments. And that's why you have Jesus with the disciples, that at times he would rebuke them. And he would give them a hard word, and it was not because he did not love them. It was not that he was just trying to be harsh to them, but he was calling them to a higher place. And there would be times where he would say, you know, how long do I have to put up with you, you faithless generation? And that sounds kind of harsh, but what he was saying is, I want the absolute best for you. It's kind of the mindset of parents when we we sometimes bring discipline to our kids. It's not just the the fact of being hard on them, maybe sometimes when we get in the flesh, but a lot of times, most of the time, it's because we want the absolute best for them. We want them to see what we see. We want them to understand that we want them to walk in the very best. And that's why we see in this thing of being a follower of Christ, not just his invitation to the 12, and he had these 12 guys that were around him, but his invitation was to us as well. So what did he invite them to, and what is he inviting us to? What does it mean to be his follower? I'm I'm going to tell you, as you look at the Gospels, what he said, the things that he invited not only them to, but us to, it's a life-altering decision. And it has potential to change our lives forever. And as I prayed earlier, to redeem our past, to change our present, and to change the direction of our future in a good way. It's life-altering, but in the best of ways. It has the potential to change our relationships for the good. It has the potential to change our work ethic our, and ultimately our hearts forever and ever. And as you see in the Gospels, it's not for the faint of heart. When Jesus invited his disciples with the words, follow me, they knew what he was asking of them. They knew it. That's why you would see them when, when he went to the fishermen and he said, come and follow me. It says they dropped their nets and they followed him. They left the life that they knew behind and they followed him. They knew this was life altering. They knew that this was not just a faint of heart, emotional decision that they were, had to be all in. He was asking them, are you all in and not just partially in? And throughout the Gospels, we see people make that all-in commitment to him. We see others that can't or won't make that commitment, and those people were more fans than followers, and you see that throughout the Gospels. They mainly looked at what Jesus could do for them. They loved his miracles, but they were a little reluctant to go all-in with him. They, they liked him as a person. Maybe they thought he was a great teacher but they held back. Some followed, we see, like Peter and Andrew and James and John dropping their nets. We see Matthew leave his tax collector's booth and follow after Jesus, but we also see some people make excuses. And he dealt with that in the movie. The, the pastor who was narrating that in Luke chapter nine, you have at the at the very end, you have people making excuses where Jesus would invite them, and they were making all kinds of excuses. I will, but let me do this first. Let me go here and get this. Uh, and then let me get my house in order. Let me get everything that's, that's set. Let me make sure my, my financial security is is there. And then and then we'll we'll talk. We'll, and and it's, it's as if they were negotiating with him, and they made excuses. And Jesus called them out. So we're going to look at the difference of fans or followers in a few minutes and examine our own hearts of what we are. And so the question is, are you a fan or follower? Is there an area of your life where you've been more of a fan than a follower? I know that there's been areas of my life. This has been as convicting to me as any any one of you. But do you ever have moments or events in your life that make you evaluate your relationship with Jesus? Or if you aren't a Christian, it makes you think of Jesus and eternity. You ever have those times? I had one this summer when we were at camp. Um, I was reluctant to tell this publicly because the board might say you can't drive the van anymore. Um, But (laughs) you're right. Um, I had to run an errand into Foston from the camp. It's about six miles away, so you know the trailer's on the van, and so I. Go, I'm going into Foston coming back, and I have the cruise control on. And it's not a good idea just to, say, to have a cruise control on a 15-passenger van with a trailer on curvy roads. Lesson learned. If you, that's a good note to take. And so I'm coming back, and, uh, and, and I have the cruise on. And so, and I've driven this. I used to be the youth pastor. I've driven that thing all over the place, and so I've never had problems and so I come around in a curve, and about middle of that curve, I'm thinking I'm going too fast, which is a little too late to make that decision. The tires, the right side, just kind of drip off. There's a, there's a little you know, little ledge, not, not like ledge, but you know, just about that much, and, and the tires dropped off, and so you correct. Well, then the trailer starts going, and I see it, and then it starts turning the van. So I'm literally, the van is doing this, and the trailer's curving behind me. And I'm going into the other lane, and there's nothing I can do except pray. And I was doing that in spades. I was scared. I mean, it was frightening. I was, and, and then I got, the, I got everything. There's not a car out there. And I just, thank God. I mean, it was, and then I just came to a stop. And then I did about 30 miles per hour the rest of the way <laughs> on a 55 mile an hour uh, speed limit area. Well, I got back to the camp. I was shaking. I mean, have you ever had those moments and i 'm thinking about what could have just happened i'm thinking it could have flipped i could what if there was a car coming? I mean all of these things, these scenarios and and we know. I mean, you read the news. I mean, you see it. You guys have probably had people you know, relatives that have been in car accidents. I'm thinking all of these scenarios that could have happened. And as I I went up to my my knees are about like knocking together. I'm, 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 I was probably as pale as could be. And I just sat in my room and I just and I spent about a half hour just like in prayer and thanking God. It was It was that scary to me. And in all of these things, you know, eternity and my relationship with the Lord, and I mean, it, it literally was that close, where it could have been—I mean, could have been very serious. And it took time to just evaluate and reflect, and thank God a whole bunch of what could have happened there. And so, it's moments like that that make you think, that make you ponder, reflect, or it should, because we all know here, and we know the old cliche that we're not promised tomorrow; we're not. And it's moments like that, and, and, and as, as I was preparing even in this, this series, I, I was really, really take, taken back to that moment this summer and saying, you know, again, God, thank you, but God, help me to understand that life is very precious, and help me not to forget that life is precious and you've given us life. And so as we begin this series today, I want to challenge us to take a step back And I want us to evaluate our relationship with Jesus. Some of you guys are familiar with the uh, the little DTR. Does anybody know what DTR stands for? DTR, define the relationship. Have you ever heard that? A lot of couples will have this mindset of where, uh, mainly girls, they give the DTR talk. You know, let's define the relationship. Let's, where are we at? What is this relationship? Why do you want to date me? Why do you want to go out with me? Let's define this. And so we're going to do a little bit about that. We're going to evaluate our relationship with Jesus. I encourage you to do that, to take the step back and evaluate where you're at with the Lord. And if you're a believer, what is your relationship with Jesus like? If you're not a believer, I encourage you to really evaluate your heart and thinking about eternity But here's some evaluating questions as we move forward. What is is my relationship with Jesus based on? How do I approach my relationship with him? Is it religious? Have I've always just known religious things and religious thoughts. And a lot of us have been burned by religion, even burned by the church in some ways. And we framework our relationship with him in a place of religion. And when people say Jesus or, or they mention Jesus, sometimes we immediately go to religious things. Why am I in a relationship with Jesus? And what do I want out of my relationship with Jesus? The foundational text for this series is Luke 19. If you want to turn there, you can. Luke, or Luke 9, I'm sorry, Luke 9, 18 through 26. It'll be up on the board here up on the screen. I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to just kind of talk about it, and uh, we'll move forward. But this is a foundational text for the series, Luke 9, 18 through 26. This is Jesus, and and you're going to hear this thing about being his follower. Once when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, and so here's that teachable moment where his disciples are around him. He's praying, and they're kind of hanging around him. That's good discipleship. He asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say that one of the, you're one of the prophets of long ago who has come back to life. And here's an evaluating question that Jesus was asking them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's a great evaluation question for us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? And it's interesting, the thoughts that are out there of, of, of Jesus being a great teacher. He was, you know, he was a good man. Um, and we have these mindsets in, 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 in just all over the place. Even in the church and in the world, you will hear different kind of places. He's a good teacher. He's a good man. He's a, he was a healer. He was infinitely good. And Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Because it's very important for our own hearts To know who Jesus is to us and Jesus says to them and he says to to us as well, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you're God's Messiah. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he would do that sometimes and I think that one of the reasons why he would tell people not to say things and he told the disciples, "Don't, don't reveal that yet. Because as we evaluate our, 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 follow, our following of him, what is it based on? There were times when Jesus would heal and he would tell people, don't go tell what I've done for you today. And you would think that they would broadcast that everywhere. And, and why would he do that? Because he was saying, I don't want people to follow me for the miracles. I don't want people to follow me for just simply what I can do for them. I want people to follow me for who I am. And so Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now this was, you would think that just that statement would just, okay, stand alone. This was very hard for them to get. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's with his disciples and he's saying, you guys need to understand, I'm going to suffer. In one place, it has Peter rebuking him for saying this. And so Peter's heart, and we even see when he denies Christ, you know the story where he denies him three times, his relationship with Jesus was put to the test, the evaluation of what kind of a follower are you, Peter? And one time Jesus said, the son of man must suffer, and Peter pulls him off to the side and says, you're not going to die, this is not God's will for your life, and then Jesus rebukes him, said, no, this is why I came. Because Peter was saying, I want to follow you as long as you're going to take over. I want to follow you because I want to see you obliterate all your, your foes and you're going to raise up your this kingdom on the earth and we're going to just, we're going to be on the winning team here. And Jesus said, No, this is how it's going to go down. I'm going to suffer. This is this is a part of what the Father has, this is what he's called me to do. And this was hard for them to hear. And not only that, but in this context, he says this, and he makes a distinction. He said, it's not going to be the Romans that kill me. They'll end up crucifying him. But did you hear who's going to do it? He said, church people are going to kill me. It's going to be the religious that are going to kill me. Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he calls out these three different people in the church. And that is a warning that we can sometimes get so religious we miss Jesus Christ Himself. Religion will interfere with Him. But he, on the third day, He will be raised alive. Verse 23, here's that key passage. Then He said to them all, Whoever, I love that word, whoever, you are a whoever, whoever. That's for all of us. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, he must deny. they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And what he's saying there is this is what it means to be my follower. You can't do this halfway. You can't do this 90%. This is an all-in invitation and commitment. And then he goes on to say, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And this is that upside-down kingdom. And so, like, what are you talking about? He says, if you just live to preserve your life, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose it to something. You're going to follow after something because we all follow something. But if you lose your life for my sake, then you will save it or you will find it. Then he says, Verse 25, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self or their soul? He's saying, what are you, what are you in this for? Are you in it for self? Are you in it for self-preservation? Are you in it to gain the world, to, to get more stuff, to acquire more things? What is the point of your life? He says, you can can gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. And then he says this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is very sobering talk from Jesus. And as you read it and it hits us, yes, it's intended to be hard hitting. Because this is his invitation. This is what it means to be his follower. These are not my words. These are his words. And they're meant to penetrate to the very depths of our being. And it's his invitation again to all of us. He says, whoever. He wasn't just talking to those guys. He's saying, whoever wants to be my follower. Anyone can be my follower. If you've had a messed up past, if you went through abuse, if you were an abuser, if you went through addiction, you can be my follower. Whoever wants to be my follower. But here is what it takes to be my follower. You have to give up everything. You have to give your life to me. And so this isn't a lighthearted, emotional decision that Jesus was getting at. He was asking for total, complete devotion. And so the, the first kind of word that I'm keying on this morning is followers of Jesus must be devoted. And devotion is defined as this. It's profound dedication and commitment. Profound dedication and commitment. What it says, it says, my life is in my own and I'm completely and wholeheartedly in regardless of what comes my way. Regardless of circumstances, I'm in. And so as I was thinking about then, I was preparing this, I was thinking about the analogy of Marriage. You can put up the next picture. Isn't that sweet? Thank you for that awe. Oh, that was very precious. That's my wedding day with my bride, Athena. Yes, we're of legal age, if you were wondering. <laughs> it is Tennessee, and it's, they bend the rules a little bit, but, uh, you know, 16 and 14 are just fine there. We were a little older than that. But this is our wedding day. Look at that goofy grin on my face. Isn't that funny? Athena said, you're not going to show that picture with my big hair. Yes, this was the early 90s, folks. That was in. Love that. What are you thinking about on that day? And most of you guys, you know, you have a picture like this, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's your wedding day, and those guys that are married, or if you're not married, you're looking forward to being married. This kind of personifies what's going on in your mind. It's just a goofy grin. But on that day, we exchanged vows, as everyone here that, that is married did. I'm going to read to you my vows to Athena. Part of them, but I want this to sit in, set into our hearts, because when we think about profound commitment and dedication, and most of you guys, it's very similar to what you you did to when you when you got married. But the first thing they say to me is is and I and I cued in on this because this has not happened in all of them, but we decided to do this. But he says to me. Bruce, will you, by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, assume the greater responsibility in carrying out the terms of this covenant? And of course, with a goofy grin, I might say, yeah, okay. <laughs> then he says to me... "When." When, we're, when we're, you know, we're getting ready to go through that vow process to exchange. But he says, Bruce, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? To live together after God's ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony. Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor her, and keep her? In sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keep only unto her as long as you both shall live. And of course, with a goofy grin, of, yeah, sure. And then my vows to her was i bruce take you athena to be my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health to love you even as christ loves the church to cherish you as my own flesh to protect you and care for you the rest of our lives till death do us part according to god's holy ordinance and thereto i pledge you my trust do we think about what we are saying. And I can tell you that according to that picture, I was just happy to be married. But what we don't think about is this. We don't think about what's coming in the days ahead and the months ahead. Because most of us here, you know, when you, when you do these vows, you're not, you're not thinking about splitting apart. You're not thinking about that horrible word called divorce. This is what we're thinking about. And then why is it that mar- a lot of marriages don't last? Now, I'm not talking about being profoundly dedicated and committed in a place of abuse. That's just a wholly, totally different subject for a different day. But I'm talking about a lot of marriages, This well, we just don't agree anymore, we just don't get along anymore, whatever. And, 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 and the, the dedication and commitment doesn't last. So what happens? On the wedding day, we don't think of things that are coming that will be challenges, trials, conflict. Because the true test of the commitment is when we go through the fire, isn't it? That's the test of unity. That's why when the Bible talks about, and and Paul hammers every one of those churches in one way or another, he talks about unity and profound dedication to each other. I mean, we were to be dedicated and devoted to the Lord, but we're supposed to be dedicated and devoted to each other. And when he talks about unity, he's talking about that you're not always going to get along. That's why he says make allowance for each other's faults. Because the true test of unity is when you disagree and when you go through the fire. And so on that day with that goofy looking grin on my face, little did I know, or we knew, that five months later she was going to be pregnant with Taylor and I was going to get laid off from my job and I was going to be on unemployment and we were going to be in the hardest financial time of our lives. Do you think you're thinking about that on that day? Absolutely not. And if we could, if I could have her up here when she could, t- it was a test. It was hard. I mean, she was... Had severe sickness with her pregnancy. It was very bad. We were financially very, very, it was very tough. And so you immediately start going through trials and the fire. And, and the tendency, and I'm, I'm just being honest, if, if I can be just transparent, the, the tendency is you begin to sometimes turn on each other. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do. And so little did we know that that was coming five months after this date. And other things that come along, those hurdles, those things that challenge us and test us. But that is what tests that commitment. And see, what we usually do is we blow right through those vows. And those vows, thats not that a picture? When you hear that, that is profound dedication that we're being invited to on that day. But a lot of times we blow right through the vows and we're thinking, how quickly can I get to the honeymoon? If I'm being real. And all the men said, amen. And the girls blush and say, yes, amen to that. Because we don't approach the vows. We are not sitting there thinking with conditions. You know, in sickness and in health. And then we stop the, the minister and say, hold on a second. In sickness and in health, honey, unless this, this, or this happens, then I'm out. For richer, for poorer, unless we get poor. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the big killers of marriage is this financial strain. But most people have the vow, and richer for, for, for richer, for poorer, I'm all in until we get poor. In good times and in bad times... Unless the bad times are really bad, then I'm out. We don't say that. We're not thinking of that. That day, we say, I'm totally in. But the commitment and devotion are tested through the pain, the trials, and the conflict of life. That is the true test. In fact, I think that pre-marriage... The premarital counseling that people go through, I think, I think that what, what the, what, you, know, you should almost sit down with people and say, okay, I want to give you a profound statement before you get married. Prepare to die. Because this is how you're going to be happy, is you're going to have to die to yourself. Because it's two broken people that have all kinds of issues, because we're all dysfunctional. The church is filled with dysfunctional people. We put the funk in dysfunction. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> and you take two broken people and you're going to join these lives together and you think that you're not going to have many problems or whatever, you, you have another thing coming. So premarriage marriage should be prepared to die. And it's interesting that if you look at it, marriage is more of a death and funeral is more of a wedding. That's a profound statement. Marriage is like a death because you have to die to yourself. Because the invitation to what God is asking us to is to die to ourselves so that the relationship can be what it needs to be. And then on a funeral, we pass from this life to the next to be betrothed to Jesus forever and all eternity. That's good. Because it was from God. Because success in relationship is described as agape love. The invitation from Jesus is agape love. What does that mean? It's self-sacrificial love. It's laying down our lives for each other. It's not just fond affection. It's not just admiration, but it's self-sacrificial love. And so reflecting on all this is so important for us to evaluate our faith walk and our relationship with Christ. And know that he's inviting us to complete and total unconditional commitment and not just being his fan. And so I'm going to look in the, in the, next, few, the next slide here, what are the differences? Where we're at and what are the differences? These five, I'm going to look at five differences of being a fan and a follower. So number one is this. A fan is, follows conditionally. A follower follows unconditionally. So a fan is conditional or has conditions in the relationship. A follower follows unconditionally, saying, I'm in no matter the circumstances, whether good or bad. The fan says, I'm in if the conditions are right and and, and only good things come out for me, and I benefit all the time. But when things don't go my way, I'm out. And I remove myself from this. Conditional. Conditional. Or unconditional? Is your relationship with Jesus, do you approach him conditionally or unconditionally? Number two, a fan has off-limits areas in their lives that Jesus isn't allowed into. A follower allows Jesus into every every area of life. This This is the difference between being a guest or ownership. And see, there's a, again, there's a, if, you, if you interview people in the world, there was a guy that wrote a book a few, a few years ago. It was a fantastic book, but, but he says um, they like Jesus but not the church. There's a lot of people that like Jesus. They like what he represents. They like what he does. But they don't see it lived out in the church, and so they, they despise the church. And that's where the church, we have, to get, we have to get it figured out and allow Christ to work in our hearts first. But do we allow Jesus to have full access to every area of our lives? Or do we just like for him to be a guest? We like him to stop by. We think he's neat. We like him when he does stuff for us. If I, if I have a need and he meets the need, I really like Jesus those days. Uh, Jesus, I, need, I have this little area of my life. Um, if you come into the kitchen here, and I've got this little problem in my life, but please do not, you are not allowed into the bedroom because there's a lot of private things that go on in there. I'm not allowing you in that area of my life. And we, this is tied to the other one because we have these conditional areas of our lives that say, Jesus, touch this area of my life, but that's off limits to you. You're not allowed there. And see, Jesus is wanting full access because that is where freedom comes from, is because he wants to overhaul our lives. He wants to redeem us. He wants to get rid of those things from the past that that keep haunting us and taking us down. He wants to set us free from addictions and, and the things that bind our hearts. And he comes and he says, you have to give me full access to your life, not just a part. And we have to open up every door and say, come in, Jesus, and do whatever you want because he's gonna start rearranging things. And and that's why I said it's a life-altering decision, but in a good way. In other words, Jesus, I'm no longer the owner, you are. Rearrange how you want to rearrange. Number three, a fan is contractual, a follower is covenantal, the difference between a contract and a covenant. A lot of times people will approach Jesus, with a contract. Contracts are based on mutual benefit, and if one party doesn't hold up their end, the other party is out. Or if I perceive that you don't hold up your end, then I can be out. And we approach Jesus with a contract and say, if you will do this, then I will do this. If you will... We're in a bad bad situation. If you will provide for me, then I will follow you. If you will heal, then I will follow you. If you will do this, I will follow you. And we approach him with contract. And he wants to tear the contract up and say, this is a covenant relationship. Covenant is a biblical idea. It's a very powerful idea, and I won't get into all the ramifications, but ultimately covenant was established with sacrifice and blood. They would seal a covenant with bloodshed. And you see how Jesus approaches the relationship with us as a covenant because he shed his blood for us. That's why in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice animals because without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. Something had to die because of sin. But as Hebrews tells us, it says that was an imperfect sacrifice because it's the blood of animals. And it's imperfect. But for that period of history, it had to suffice. But then there was one coming, the spotless Lamb of God, which is one of Jesus' names, and he went to the cross and he shed his blood. for the new covenant between God and his people and that's what it says about his sacrifice that he shed his blood for the new covenant because this thing was more than a contract to him it was a covenant relationship to redeem us from sinfulness and it once again it says i'm devoted to this no matter what number 4 a fan loves Jesus for what he can do a follower loves Jesus For Jesus. And all these are tied together. But this separates fans from followers. Fans treat Jesus like a genie or Santa Claus. I want this. I need this. And Jesus, you exist to give this to me. I claim this. I have the rights to this. And Jesus, you owe me. If I say this prayer enough ways, and then you are obligated to do this for me. And we miss out that he exists more than what he can do for us. Now, he does enjoy doing things. The psalmist says, forget not his benefits. And that he heals our diseases, and he, he is our provider, and he is our protector, and he does do things for us. But when we treat him like a, a, a holy Santa Claus or genie, we've got it the wrong, wrong, wrong way around. He wants us to love him for him. How would you like to have a relationship with a person, or in marriage, and they say, I only will love you. And, they, and, they, and, they, and, they, and on the day of the wedding, they make the vow, and they said, I will I will love you, and I will give my heart to you as long as you give me what I want. That's not going to be a a, a marriage that's going to last very long. But he wants us to love him for him. A follower loves him and who he is and understands that following is about a relationship and trusting him that he knows my needs. And it doesn't mean that we can't ask him for stuff. He encourages, but ask in a place of relationship. And the last one is this, a fan knows about Jesus, a follower knows Jesus. We were created to know him and for him to know us and not just about him. Back when I was in high school and in, in, in college days, I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. Reason being is I'm a one degree separated from knowing Michael Jordan. I don't know him. But well, my first cousin, Wayne Jarman, don't Google him, you'll never find him. Wayne Jarman grew up with Michael Jordan. They played Little League baseball together. When Michael Jordan was playing for the Bulls, he would come home to Wilmington, North Carolina, and sometimes go to the supermarket. Wayne would see him there, and he, Michael Jordan, here he is, you know, playing for the Bulls, he would be shopping for his mom. And Wayne was like, what are you doing? He said, yeah, my mom doesn't care how famous I am. She sends me out to run errands. (laughs) And so that's as close, uh, probably as close as I am as a famous person. But Wayne, they played little league baseball together in the same team. And I knew all kinds of things. He went to North Carolina, 1982, uh, national championship. I knew a lot about Michael Jordan. They probably played for my favorite college team. I became a Bulls fan. I wasn't a follower of the Bulls. I was just a fan because Michael Jordan was there. And I knew a lot about him. But if I was to see him and run up to him and begin to act like I know him, he would probably think that I was crazy. Maybe until I mentioned Wayne, then maybe we'd have something there. But knowing about someone is far different than knowing them. I can have stats figured out. I can know what he does. I can like, you know, he likes steak and potatoes. It's one of his favorite meals. But that doesn't mean that I know him. Religion knows about Jesus. We can even... Read the word and memorize and, 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 and think about him sometimes. And, but that doesn't mean that we know him. He wants to know us and he created us to know him in relationship. A follower knows him. A fan knows about him. So where are you at with Jesus today? As you evaluate and define your relationship with him, again, I'm gonna ask you are you a fan or follower? Are there areas in your life that you've only been a fan? Are there areas of your life that have been off limits to him? So I want us to think about this, ponder this, and allow the Holy Spirit to place His hand on those areas. But I want to close with this. I want to close with the good news in all of this. Because this can sound burdensome. It can sound like just this whole thing is on us. It is not. And that is the good news. I want to talk about His commitment and His devotion to you and me. Because Before creation happened, before there was anything that was made, Jesus was thinking about us. Even when sin came into the world, the Father made a commitment to you and me. And Jesus, through through, through his son, he is profoundly dedicated and devoted to you. Because he isn't asking anything from us that he didn't already do. That's why in that passage when he says the Son of Man must suffer and he must die and he's going to be raised to life. He went through it first and then his invitation is, says, if you want to be my follower, take up your cross daily and follow me. And he went before us. What was his commitment to us? His commitment to us was the cross. When he says to us, if you want to be my follower, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, it wasn't one sided. He proved his devotion and his commitment to us, and he de- desired, he, his desire for us is that he committed his entire life for us. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us first and he gave up his life for us. That was his commitment to you and me. The cross was his devotion. The cross was his vow when he made a vow to us, and he says, I will, I, will, I will cherish you in good times and in bad times, in sickness and in health. I will be there for you. And here is my vow, the cross. I will lay it all out, and I will give my life for you. And the cross, what seemingly was the greatest loss and defeat in history, was the greatest demonstration of love and victory for humanity. It was offensive how he died. I mean, Paul even says it was, it, was, it was cursed as anyone who hangs on a tree. And so he became a curse for us. He took upon our sin upon himself. And he was humiliated. He was stripped naked and he was beaten and tortured. And that was his vow. That was his devotion to you and me. You don't have to look any farther than that to understand that he was completely all in for us. He didn't do it halfway. He was all in when he made the commitment to us. The cross was the Father's plan to redeem us and free us and give us life. And Jesus stepped out of heaven and came here and he followed the Father's plan. And so this plan that was set in motion The father says, son, will you follow me? Will you follow me? And thank God that Jesus was not just a fan of the father. But he followed the plan of the father to the cross. And that was his commitment, and his vow to us. And so his commitment we, we understand that his commitment was to us. And then again, what is our commitment to him? Do you want to be a follower? Are you content to be a fan? Are there areas that you say, Jesus, I really want to be your follower in these areas. And this morning, we're going to give an opportunity for us to come before the Lord, for us to Bring those things to come before him in a new way and say, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go. I want to allow you into those areas of my life, wherever you need to go, whatever you need to touch. And I want to follow you. And so let's bow our heads and pray. And in a moment, they'll put on some worship music. And I'm going to open the front up here if you'd like to come and pray and and get alone with the Lord. I encourage you to do that, to follow him and and, and just allow the Lord to lead you and allow your response to him to be not religious in nature, but to be relational. So if you want to come up front in 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 a few moments and just pray, you can come up and find a place and just encourage you to do that if you need to go after this be blessed but Jesus we love you so much Lord thank you for your commitment to us Lord that as we look at the cross we see your devotion to us your demonstration of love and Lord today I pray God that we would go from being fans to followers and Lord, if there's areas in our lives, God, and I know that there's some things that you've even been putting your finger on in my own life, oh God, that, that, that I've, I've been your fan in those areas, God, forgive me, help us. We want to surrender those to you in a new way. We want to give those to you in a new way. We want to be your follower. We want to lay aside our selfish ambition and we want to take up our cross daily and follow you because, Lord, it really, it does come down to day to day, to day because it is about a relationship. So we need you today and we're going to need you tomorrow. We're going to need you the next day. So God, help us. Pray for your people today, God, I pray that, Lord, you would help us and you would strengthen us, that you would raise us up, God, for what you created us to walk in. We love you so much, Lord, in Jesus name. If you want to come, go ahead and come on up and Find a place to get before the Lord if you need to go. God bless you and have a a great day and have a great week.
1: i cool. and yeah. love. gave it all for us Surrounded your life upon the cross Graze a life let